The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Kirk is a professor of biblical studies and theology, and he's now the principal of Toronto Baptist Seminary. This is my second time hearing Kirk many years ago at a Sola Scriptura conference in London. I heard him speak. The theme of the conference was eschatology, and he spoke on hyperpreterism. <laughs> and I confess, Kirk, I had never heard of hyperpreterism before then. Uh, he, he first explained what it was and then demonstrated the problems with it. And uh, after hearing that, I knew what it was, and I knew I didn't agree with it. So <laughs> I appreciated that. So let's welcome Kirk tonight. Thank you very much, David. Hyperpreterism, I wish I didn't have to speak uh, about that anywhere. wish it would just go away, but some uh, errors persist in the church, and we are called upon from time to time to uh, give them a good rap on the knuckles and hopefully drive them uh, back into obscurity. I'm glad to be with you tonight and to take a look at the uh, prophecy of Malachi. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the last uh, chapter of this uh, small little book uh, hidden away in sort of the middle part of the scriptures, at least as most people look at the Bible, uh, a book that has some wonderful things to say to us if we'll do the work of uh, locating it in its own uh, place in redemptive history, seeing what it's speaking about first and foremost, and then reflecting uh, on it in light of the entire uh, canonical scriptures from Genesis through to Revelation. Once we uh, locate Malachi uh, in the biblical story, then the lessons of the book become readily apparent to us. So Malachi chapter 4. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction." This summer, I became a grandfather. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourselves, you're far too young <laughs> to be a grandfather. Whether you're thinking that or not, uh, the truth remains, I am a grandfather. And this event has uh, caused me to reflect again on the fact that time marches on and uh, waits for no one. For the Christian... 
the passage of time brings us ever closer to the new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness, the place that we long for, at least in our better moments, the place that we you know, want to see with our own eyes and, and experience in the totality of our redeemed humanity. But the passage of time also presents us with challenges. And one of the greatest challenge is the challenge of waiting. As time goes on and our lives unfold, we have to deal with the reality of broken dreams and unfulfilled expectations. This can lead to bitterness. It can lead to cynicism, to discouragement, and to despair. As believers, of course, we're called to embrace uh, God's promises even from afar. We are called to hold on to them even when they seem a long way off and sometimes when they seem almost unbelievable as if they will never ever materialize. We are called to, to believe in God and to trust in his word. But as I get older, I realize that this is something that's easy to say, something that's easy to talk about, but is far more difficult uh, to do. Sometimes we find ourselves lost in the swirl of time. The decades of our lives go by so very, very quickly. I can remember as though it were yesterday when I was there in the maternity ward and my first child, a son, was put in my arms and the nurse said to me, well, there you go, Dad. And I looked down at Caleb and I thought to myself, oh boy, what have I done? And here I am this summer, a grandfather of all things. And I've said to folks, there's really not a lot left in life, is there? I might live to become a great-grandfather, and then it's really time for me to make my departure unless the Lord returns. I'm not trying to sound depressing or to discourage you, but there is this realization as we, as we get older that time goes by oh so quickly, and the idealistic dreams of youth are rarely ever realized. I can remember starting out in ministry and being involved in church planting, and seeing some measure of blessing in that enterprise. And yet I've got to confess from this particular vantage point that things have not worked out as I thought they would work out. My dreams, the things that I hoped for, have not all come to pass. And I say with the passage of time, it is easy for us to become bitter, to become cynical, to have a kind of I've been there, I've seen that, I've done that attitude. And we can dismiss what God is doing in the, in the present. It's easy for us to be discouraged and even get to the point of, of despair, of being so disillusioned that we really are not sure where to turn for help. And sometimes it's so bad, we're not even sure that we want help. Well, this brings me to Malachi. It brings me to this wonderful little gem 
in the Bible that I've had the opportunity of studying the past few weeks. Malachi is a short prophecy of four chapters that brings our Old Testament to a close. I say our Old Testament because our Bibles, our English versions, follow the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that puts Malachi last. And the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures end with the book of Chronicles, end with an emphasis on, on King David and uh, looking for the greater David who was to come, that David who would sit on the throne of Israel forever and forever. Our Bibles end... I think, quite rightly, not to say that the ending of the Hebrew Bible is wrong, that's just another emphasis, but our Bibles end quite rightly in a complementary fashion uh, with Malachi, and I hope we'll see why that is the case this evening. I've been asked to speak on the last chapter, but the last chapter summarizes the whole prophecy. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to feed the entire prophecy through the last chapter or take you through a sort of overview of the entire book ending up at the last chapter because only in that way do I think that you'll be able to appreciate the richness of what is being said. Now, as with much of the Bible, we must understand the text in context. And uh, we must do that if we're to interpret Scripture correctly, if we're to apply it correctly. And so I'm going to begin with some background information, then get to the actual content of the prophecy itself before moving to application, trying to uh, take the word of God that was spoken through Malachi the prophet to the uh, nation of Israel and apply it to us in Toronto on an August evening in 2012. The name Malachi means messenger. Some scholars believe it is a possible abbreviation of a longer title, the Lord's Messenger. Malachi's message has a number of special characteristics. One of the foremost characteristics is the fact that the phrase, the Lord Almighty or the Lord of hosts, or as the New Living Bible puts it, the uh, Lord of Heaven's armies is repeated over and over and over again. In fact, 43.6% of the verses in this little prophecy of Malachi have this phrase, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Heaven's armies. This phrase is found more often in Malachi than any other Old Testament book. The message of Malachi comes to us in the form of prose as opposed to or over against poetry. And the particular form of prose is that of sarcasm. It is a book that is full of divine sarcasm as God comes to his, his people and he enters into a discussion, a dispute with them. And over and over again he he draws their attention to certain key uh, things that he wants them to consider and never to forget. The fact that the message comes to us in the form of prose, which is you know, perhaps the clearest, most matter-of-fact way that God could state things, indicates that God is warning Israel to hear and to take seriously what he's saying. This is not a time for poetry. This is a time for plain talk. Read my lips, God is saying. Understand my message. 
After a brief introduction, the book is divided into, to see if I can get this microphone right here so it doesn't keep banging my face. Uh, after a brief introduction, the book is divided into six sections that represent disputes between the Lord and Israel. And if you look at your Bible, you will see that they are as follows. The first section is chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. The second, chapter 1, verse 6 to 2, verse 9. The third, chapter 2, verse 10 to verse 16. The fourth, chapter 2, verses 17 to 3, verse 5. The, um, uh, what was that, 1, 2, 3, 4. The, the fifth, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And the sixth, chapter 3, verse 13 to 4, verse 3. Then there is a conclusion, which involves chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. And then, although it's not stated in the text, there is actually 400 years of silence. With the end of the prophecy of Malachi, with uh, what is in our Bible, chapter 4, verse 6, God stops speaking in any kind of direct way to Israel. And it is not until 400 years later that... There is a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. There is a chiastic structure to the disputes that it is helpful to uh, be aware of if we're going to interpret the prophecy correctly. Uh, all that means is that chapters 1 and 6 go together. Chapters 2 and 5 go together, and chapters 3 and 4 go together. There are thematic links between those chapters that's indicated by the very structure of the text. We can also look at the text, and, and, and we will be aware of the fact that there's a, a, a twofold division. Not only are there six sort of disputes between God and Israel, but these six disputes can be divided into two groups of three. The first three will focus on the demands of the Mosaic law and the implications of that law for Israel. The last three, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are eschatological in nature. They have to do with future events, with the coming of the Lord and with the wonderful salvation that he will accomplish in his own, due, in his own time. There is a forward movement through the book. Uh, Dispute one, moving to two, to three, to four, to five, to six, and not just going round and round in circles, but moving forward, advancing the argument, driving the point home, making us aware of, of key features in redemptivism. The disputes follow a very discernible pattern. First of all, there's some kind of accusation made by the Lord or made by Malachi the prophet. Then there is a response on the part of the people, often questioning what has just been said. And then the Lord comes back with an explanation, with proof, uh, with, with uh, words of judgment, words of warning, and sometimes words of promise and uh, salvation. There are a few things you need to know about the times of Malachi and Israel if you're going to appreciate this book. You need to know that the prophet Malachi spoke about a hundred years 
after Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. That captivity came to an end in about 538 BC. So Malachi is ministering about 100 years after Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity and about 80 years after the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets who encouraged Israel to rebuild the temple. When Malachi speaks, the temple has already been rebuilt. Probably Ezra and Nehemiah were ministering at the same time as contemporaries of Malachi. But although the temple had been rebuilt, although Israel had enjoyed the ministries of men like Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah, all was not what it had been and all was certainly not what they had hoped for. When Malachi opens his mouth and declares the word of the Lord, Israel was just a rump of its former self, a shadow of the old nation. Scholars tell us that Judah, which has taken over the name Israel at this point in time, Judah had been reduced to, a, to an area of land about 20 miles by 25 miles, or 30 by 40 kilometers. And the population of Judah was only about 150,000. The nation was not autonomous, but was under the control of foreign powers who, who made life difficult for them. And there was no Davidic king upon the throne. But what made matters worse, what was worse than all of that, was the fact that Haggai and Zechariah had spoken about glory days to come. In their prophecies, they spoke about God reaching out and, and uh, touching the nations, about God expanding the borders of Israel, about a time of peace and prosperity. And more wonderful than anything else, they spoke about a glorious presence of God himself among his people. But when Malachi speaks, here was Judah, back in the land, but only a representation of what had been, a shadow of the old nation. And the temple that had been rebuilt was a sad reminder of the glory and the greatness of Solomon's temple. And worst of all, Worst of all, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, seems to indicate that there was no glory. Oh, Israel was back in the land. The temple had been rebuilt. They had enjoyed various prophetic ministries. But there was no glory. Where was the glory that was to come. When would God draw near to his people? When would he make his presence known? You see, it's into this situation that Malachi spoke. This was the context for his ministry. And I think you can begin to see right away how there is a relevance to our own day and our own situation. 
I believe that the glory that Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi speak about comes ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But the New Testament makes clear that Messiah's kingdom comes in two stages. Messiah's kingdom was inaugurated at Christ's first coming. But his kingdom has not been consummated. It will not be consummated until he comes again in glory and in power at the end of this age. And what has become apparent to the church of Jesus Christ, to, to you and I, what has become apparent is that there is a long, long time between the inauguration of the kingdom and its consummation, 2,012 years approximately and counting. We are living and have been living since the days of the apostles between the advents of Christ. Many promises have been fulfilled. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the powers of darkness, the powers of death will not overcome it, will not prevail against it. And he has been building his church steadily throughout the world down through the years of this gospel age. But as great as that work has been and is to this very day, there are still many things promised in the scriptures, great things promised in the scriptures that have yet to be fulfilled. And there is a huge gap between the promise and fulfillment that awaits the consummation, the return of our Lord. When you take all of that into consideration, Malachi's message is more relevant than it might at first appear. It, it has something to say to us. For Malachi was ministering to people who were, who were waiting for God to, to do the great thing that he had promised. They were waiting for the glory. They were waiting for the Lord to come to his temple and to transform his people. Waiting and waiting and waiting. The Lord has come in a wonderful way, as we will see. And yet, we find ourselves waiting. Year after year goes by. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, small in its inception, that grows and grows and grows until it's a tree big enough for the birds of the air to rest in its branches. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman puts in a batch of dough and, and it, it, it leavens the, the, the whole dough. It's, it, it's something small, insignificant, but it has a transforming effect on the, on, on the, uh, on the bread. The gospel is advancing. The church of Jesus Christ is being built. Missionaries have gone and are going out into the world, and yet we live in a day in which we're still waiting. We look around in our own province of Ontario and nation of Canada, and, and oh, there's so much that, that is not what it ought to be. There's so much more that we had hoped for. 
Oh, that there were more churches planted in every city and town and village across this great country. Oh, that you could depend upon the fact that wherever you were, you could go into some place and and meet with a body of people who would have the truth and proclaim that truth, but it's not always that way. And even in a city like Toronto, how many old church buildings are a testimony to the fact that God has done great things, but oh, we wait and wait and wait sometimes for something more. Let me take you to the heart of Malachi's message, these disputes between the Lord Almighty and Israel. And of course, I don't have time to look at them in any great detail. I just want to give you a feel for these six discussions, conversations that are going on between God and Israel. The first one, of course, is found in chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. And it involves Israel complaining about the absence of the Lord's love. The prophecy begins with the Lord reminding Israel of his love. But Israel doubts God's love. Israel doubts God's love because of their present circumstances. God says, I love you. And Israel says, how have you loved us? And God says, have you forgotten that I chose Jacob but not Esau? That I loved Jacob and I hated Esau, not in the sense of personal animus, but in the sense of I chose to work with Jacob uh, to uh, place him in salvation history. My promise would rest with him, the, the promise of salvation, the promise of blessing, and not with Esau, not with Edom that came from Esau. It's not to say that, that all of Jacob's uh, physical descendants are saved any more than it is to say that all of, of Esau's or Edom's descendants are lost but it's to say in terms of salvation history, in terms of salvation priority and and purpose and distinction, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. And God says in this passage, though Esau, though Edom uh, seeks to rebuild itself and to remain a presence, a powerful presence in the world, it will not succeed. For my purpose is with Jacob, my purpose is with Israel, my purpose lies in the one who will eventually come from them. In the second dispute, the Lord actually turns the tables on his people. He says that the real problem in Israel is not a lack of love on his part, but a lack of love on their part. And this lack of love, this lack of respect, this lack of honor is seen in the shoddy worship of the people and in the conduct of the priests. Oh, Israel may say outwardly that they love the Lord, but their outward profession is is belied by the fact that when they come to offer sacrifices, Instead of offering the best of their flocks, they offer what is lame and what is diseased. And in this way, they show contempt for the Lord. God says to them, you wouldn't think of doing this to the, to the, to the Persian governor who, who is uh, over you. you. You wouldn't dare offer him uh, some kind of second-rate sacrifice. Yet you do it to me, all the while professing your love for me. And then in this second dispute which starts at verse 6 of chapter 1 and goes through to 
chapter 2, verse 9, uh, the Lord zeroes in on the priests. And he says the priests have, have uh, led the people astray by their teaching and by their example. They are men who should have preserved knowledge and, and who, should have, uh, who should have led people in the right way. But instead they have caused people to stumble and they have violated the covenant with Levi. And therefore they will reap the consequences of divine judgment. But notice verse 11. In the midst of this dispute, all is not lost. For the prophet sees a day when the situation will be remedied. He sees a day when God will so intervene, when God will so work, that from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, there will be people who know the Lord and who call upon his name in truth and who honor him and love him as he should be honored and should be loved. And we come to the third dispute, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Now the Lord takes Israel to task for its moral corruption. And this is very interesting. Ritual, ceremonial, religious corruption never exists in a vacuum. Where people do not love the Lord as they should, where they do not worship him as they should that will be joined with moral aberration. And the particular form of moral aberration that the prophet puts his finger on has to do with the marriage relationship, has to do with uh, God's covenant people entering into marriages with, with those who are pagans, those who do not love the Lord and know the Lord, but instead are worshipers of false gods. And God, through the prophet, has something to say to those who unlawfully divorce their wives and in that way show contempt for the covenant that they have made before the Lord and which has therefore resulted in divine deafness because they have had no respect for this covenant between husband and wife made in the presence of the Lord. The Lord will not hear their prayers, a, a kind of theme and conception that is taken up in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and, and in a, a letter like First Peter that speaks of the sanctity and the priority of the marriage relationship. So God says, I love you, and Israel says, how have you loved us? Suggesting that they don't believe him. And he says, you've forgotten your history. You've forgotten what I have done with Jacob and with Israel over against the judgment that I have brought upon Esau and Edom. Problem with you, Israelites, is that you do not love me as you should. Well, how can that be, says Israel? Look at your worship. Look at how you come to me. You, 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 you show disdain for my name. You, you, you trample my glory underfoot by offering... Uh, uh, Offerings to me that you wouldn't offer to anybody else. And as if that weren't bad enough, there's moral corruption. You're unfaithful. You have no regard for the distinction between what is holy and unholy. And you are prepared to violate your covenants with one another just as you violate your covenant with me. Well, in chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, verse 5, the Lord comes 
again to Israel. This time he broadens his indictment of the people. But you remember what I said at the beginning, as we move through these disputes or through these confrontations between the Lord and Israel, there is a progression. And as we leave the first three and we we come into the last three, there's an emphasis upon, a growing emphasis upon eschatology, upon what, what God is going to do to remedy the situation. And so God says that beyond their ritual sins and their violation of the marriage covenant, Israel has, in general, an easy-come, easy-go attitude with regard to sin. The Lord says that he's wearied by their insistence that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Now, why would anybody say that? I say, here are people who are discouraged. Here are people who are disillusioned. Here are people who think, you know, we, we, had, we had hoped for greater things, for better things, and here we are on the land, and, 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 and when really when we're honest, it's a huge disappointment. And, and then they have this giant pity party that, that, that then sort of extends its tentacles into every area of their lives, and they say, well, this serving the Lord is a waste of time. Serving the Lord is a burden. In fact, those who do evil in the eyes of the Lord are good, and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? But Malachi says, a day is coming when they will see just where this God is. A day is coming when the Lord will send his messenger one of whom Malachi is but a faint representation. Remember, the word Malachi means my messenger. Many people feel there's a play on words here. The Lord says there's coming a day when I will send my messenger. Malachi is, if you like, a foreshadowing of that messenger, but Malachi is not that messenger because this messenger is to come in the future. He is a messenger who is more than a messenger because there's a parallelism here in the text He is the messenger of the covenant. He is the Lord himself who will come to his temple and fill that temple with glory. And oh, what a glory it will be. And if you want to get a glimpse of what Malachi is talking about, then you've got to go to the Gospel of John chapter 2. You've got to go to uh, that cleansing of the temple that is spoken about in John 2. You've got to go to that uh, questioning of Jesus' authority to do these things. And Jesus saying to the religious leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they think he's out of his mind. Forty-six years it's taken us to build this temple and will you destroy it in three days and raise it up? Ah, but the temple, John says, he was speaking of was his body. No, Malachi says, long before that time, a day is coming when the Lord will send his messenger A messenger who is more than a messenger, a messenger who is the Lord himself, the messenger of the covenant. And he will come, and he will fill the temple with glory. And oh, what a glory it will be now to appreciate what is being said here. You have to also see that this coming of the messenger is tied to the purification of Israel. Because if we read our New Testaments correctly, we understand that there is a transformation of what it means to be the temple of God. 
as we move from old to new covenant. The old building, as glorious as it might be, is not the ultimate temple of God. We look for something more wonderful than that. You see, that's what Haggai, that's what Zechariah, that's what these men were seeing from afar. And Israel was interpreting it of, oh, well, we'll rebuild the temple and, and, and the glory of God will come in and as in days gone by. But no, even in the glory of, the, of, of Solomon's temple, it was not what God intended all along. For the true temple of God is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings God and man together. And he is the one who transforms his people Israel and purifies them so that they, wonder of wonders, become temples of the living God. And that's precisely what we find in the New Testament. Oh, he will purify his people. He's a refiner's fire. He's a launderer's soap. In fact, when he is done purifying this people, they will be a nation of Levites. They will be refined like gold and silver so that they bring righteous offerings to the Lord. And it's a refining process that will remove from Israel Sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers and cheats and oppressors of all kind. They will be removed from the people of God. You see, because the coming of the messenger involves a redefining of what it means to be Israel. The coming of the messenger changes everything. It changes what it means to be temple. It changes what it means to be Israel. All things become new. The fifth conversation between the Lord and Israel is found in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. God begins by reminding Israel that, that all of his dealings with the nation have been on the basis of grace. There's never been anything morally worthy about Israel. In fact, Israel was the least of all the nations of the earth. Deliberately chosen because they were the least. Deliberately chosen to highlight the fact that God, when he moves in salvation, moves in the realm of sovereign grace. From the very beginning, the nation Israel, the physical entity, the object lesson of God, if you will, turned away from the Lord and his decrees. But now he calls upon them to repent. They say, how? How are we to return to you? How are we to repent? Well, he says you can begin by, by stopping your robbery. What robbery? Your robbery of me, says the Lord. Here's where this chiastic structure becomes interesting and important. Remember I said the second dispute goes with the fifth dispute in this structure. First, sixth, second, fifth, third, and fourth. Remember in the second dispute God also had something to say about ritual impurity, about, about bringing diseased animals to the Lord, about the priests not instructing the people as they should. It has to do with their worship, their approach to God. He returns to this theme in this fifth section. 
And in this fifth section, he, he perhaps gives us some insight into their, into their thinking. Why were they bringing second-rate animals to the Lord? Well, they were bringing second-rate animals to the Lord because times were tough. And they thought, well, if we can, if we can sort of give these things to the Lord and keep the better animals for ourselves, you know, that's justifiable because there's drought, there, there's famine, there's pestilence. We aren't experiencing the blessing of God, so why should we, you know, give to God as though we were experiencing His blessing? We'll we'll hold something back. We'll we'll kind of give Him uh, something to remind Him of the fact that. We're struggling. We're having a difficult time. The prophet says that's not the way you're supposed to think. The prophet says you're supposed to put God first. It's kind of Malachi's version of seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You put the Lord first. You do what he's told you to do. You bring him the best of your crop. You honor him in this way. Do you see if he will not open the storehouses of heaven and pour you out a blessing? In fact, if you will honor God, if you will obey God, you will be a testimony to the nations. The nations will see that indeed there is a God in Israel. And he is a mighty God and a powerful God, a God to be loved and revered and served. This brings us to the, to the last dispute between God and Israel. And here the Lord rebukes them for their slanderous accusations. Now we've seen some of this uh, before. You know, we've seen it back in that, in, that, in that first dispute. I love you, says the Lord. How have you loved us, said Israel. Well, it's worse than that. Here in chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 4, verse 3, the Lord says, you have spoken arrogantly against me. You may deny it all you want, but you have spoken arrogantly against me, he says. You have said it's futile to serve the Lord. There's absolutely nothing to be gained by obeying his commandments and going around like mourners all the time. The equivalent to us saying, well, Jesus might speak about blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, but we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the promise of God. And things have not worked out according to our dreams and our plans. And we, we say, yeah, so much for this poverty of spirit. So much for these tears. So much for our prayers. So much for our evangelism. So much for our, you know, our efforts and our labors. Going back to Israel, here in Malachi's time, there's nothing to be gained from carrying out the Lord's commands, from going about like mourners before the Lord. And again, they make this suggestion that everything is inverted, that the arrogant are blessed, and that evildoers prosper. And again, God comes with a word about the future, and God says this 
state of affairs will not go on forever because God is going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the elect from the non-elect, the remnant from the rest of Israel. You see, Israel was always a mixed multitude. In Israel, you could say there was a remnant according to the election of grace. But God, you see, is looking forward to a time when it will not be true of his people, his true people, his redeemed people, his new Israel gathered around the true Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is an elect within the body. For all the body by definition will be elect. All the body by definition will be redeemed. All the body by definition will be a remnant. Until that day comes, and here we're at the last few verses of Malachi chapter 4. Until that day comes, this is kind of like an epilogue or a summary. The people are to do two things. They are to remember the law of God's servant Moses, which is really the focus of the, three, the first three disputations. Remember God's love, Malachi is saying. Remember the need to respond to him in terms of the covenant that was made with Israel at Sinai or, or Hora. Speaking, you remember, he's speaking to, to people who are under covenant at this particular point in redemptive history. So remember God's love. Remember that you are obligated to respond to God as you worship God, as you express your faith. You're obligated to respond to God in terms of the covenant made at Horeb. And remember the need to be faithful and obedient to all of God's commands, not just the commands that govern sacrifices and, 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 and the responsibilities of the priesthood, but remember all of those other commands about honoring your father and mother, about not killing, not stealing, not committing adultery, not bearing false witness. Yes, all of those other commands. Remember the law of God's servant Moses. And then he says, you're to keep your eyes on the horizon. You are to look for the prophet Elijah who will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will come in the power of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And if people will not turn, if this Israel will not turn, he will come and strike the land with total destruction. For there is going to be a new Israel that arises, that emerges. And what is going to be ultimately significant is that you're a part of that. And Elijah, this one called Elijah, will go ahead of the Lord to prepare the way, to call people to repentance, to say, get ready, the Lord is coming. And the Lord is looking for righteousness. The Lord is looking for spiritual reality. The Lord is looking for a heart that has been circumcised, not just circumcised flesh. Now, what are we to make of all of this? I know we're in Toronto. I know it's August. I know it's 2012. Well, let me suggest a few things to you in closing. The prophecy of Malachi teaches us that we must not doubt God's love for us no matter what is going on. 
You hear me? Do you ever doubt God's love? Do you ever wonder if we've made a mistake somewhere along the way? Maybe it's just me in my little office there at Toronto Baptist Seminary. Maybe it's just me when I used to sit in my study as a pastor. Looking to say, Lord, everything seems to be moving so slowly. The gospel seems to face opposition at every turn. The church doesn't seem to be growing. It seems to be shrinking. It's been years since there's been anything that could really be called a revival in this country of Canada. Lord, how long, how long, how long. And then the thought comes to the mind, well, you know, if there is a God, maybe his love is really not all that it's cracked up to be. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't love us. Maybe he's forgotten us. No, Malachi comes to us with this message. No, you must not doubt God's love. God is love. And God has set his love upon his people. And the love that he has set upon his people is is an unconditional love, is an eternal love, is a love that will overcome all obstacles. God is love and he will love us to the end no matter what is going on around us. And we must believe that. We must see that with the eyes of faith and not doubt. Secondly, we must strive against formalism and dead orthodoxy. Because this can happen while we're waiting. You know, while we're waiting, we can kind of be treading water. And we can, you know, we can get into the habit of doing things. Get into the habit of, of worship. Get in the habit of going to church. Get in the habit of saying our prayers before the meals. Get in the habit, yes, even of reading our Bibles and doing our devotions. But it's, it's just a formalism. It's a kind of dead orthodoxy. It doesn't hold our souls anymore. How did we get that way? Well, we've been on the road so long. <laughs> and we just get a little weary. And we've just gone over this ground so many times that it doesn't grip us like it did. It is sad when the passage of time shrivels the heart instead of making us more anxious to see our Savior face to face and to see that day when it dawns, that day that will usher in eternity. We must, in the third place, pursue holiness of life in an unholy world. Malachi speaks in terms of the Sinaitic or the Mosaic Covenant. We are not under that covenant as a covenant, although it is very instructive to us as the people of God. And it's to be interpreted in light of the coming of Jesus Christ and all the teaching that we have in the New Testament of Christ and of the apostles. We're to to be uh, what Jesus says. We're to be teachers of the law who, once instructed in in the kingdom of God, are able to go into the storehouse, and I think he's referring to the storehouse of the Old Testament, and bring out of the law treasures both old and new. But if we do that correctly, we will discover that holiness is always the demand of God, for he is holy, holy, holy. And he wants a holy people. 
He will have a holy people. We must pursue holiness in this world. Fourthly, we must look for the Lord's return in glory and power. Malachi was looking for the Lord to come, for the Lord to visit his temple, a, a longing that I think was fulfilled at least in its first stage with the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. Oh, but we see probably what Malachi couldn't see. From our vantage point in redemptive history, we can see that there's an even greater coming of the Lord. There is a final coming of the Lord, the coming spoken about not in the book of Malachi, but ultimately in the book of Revelation. And every eye will see him. The coming in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We must keep looking for that. I grew up in the 60s. Just at the end of of whole conferences that would be held concerning prophetic events. I can remember going to conferences where men would bring out their charts and lay out the future for us. And their arguments were sometimes so compelling that I would go home at night and I was almost afraid to shut my eyes and go to sleep because I was convinced that the Lord could come at any moment and I'd be gone. You don't find a lot of those conferences going on today. I'm not saying that everything that those guys taught I think is right or believe. But I'm saying you don't find a lot of those conferences today. In fact, you don't really find a lot of talk about and I think burning expectation or, uh, or desire for the coming of the Lord today. We've, we've kind of put that on the back burner. You know, we, we, people kind of cried wolf so many times that people tuned them out and we've gone on to other things. But listen, you cannot have a vigorous, vibrant Christianity if you do not have as your focus this idea that the Lord is coming and our ultimate hopes are tied to his coming and whatever we might do in the world in terms of the evangelization of the lost or the transformation of the culture will ultimately need him to uh, bring to completion when he comes in his glory and in his power. And so we look for that day. We must recognize the sovereignty of God and his Aseity. Aseity is just a way of saying his self-sufficient, his independence. What am I talking about here? Well, I'm just reflecting on the fact that this book, as I've mentioned, 43.6% of the verses say the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. Malachi says it more than any other Old Testament book. And you know why he said it so often? Because Israel needed to hear it. Israel needed that word of of pastoral encouragement. Israel was floundering at this point in time. A hundred years after the Babylonian captivity, they they were still waiting for the fireworks to go off, for God to to do all the things that he said he was going to do, and nothing was happening. And what they didn't know is that nothing was going to happen for another 400 years. Can you imagine? I mean, we think we've got it bad. Waiting, waiting, waiting. What is God doing? Where is the fulfillment of the promise? And God through the prophet Malachi says over and over, when I was away for a week of vacation, I read read, uh, this book over in the New Living Translation, and they use that phrase, Lord of Heaven's Armies, which, which, which is great at a certain point, but gets really kind of almost tedious and awkward when you're, you know, you're reading through the whole book. 
Because over and over and over, it's Lord Almighty is at least a little quicker, but Lord of Heaven's armies, Lord of Heaven's armies. And but but it, it has the effect of reminding you of this. It's almost ad nauseum. God says it over and over and over again. I am the Lord of hosts, I'm the Lord of Heaven's armies. Don't you dare forget that. I am sovereign, I'm in control, I will do what I want in my own time. You must remember that. And if you never live to see the, the fulfillment of your dreams, so what? You play a role that you will only understand in glory itself. Do what you're called to do and leave the results in my hands. I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed in the end. That's what God says to us. And then last but not least, we must never, never, ever succumb to the temptation of thinking that the gospel is untrue or a waste of time. And you say, who could think that? Listen, anybody who's a serious student of God's word or a Christian worker will, I think, face times in their lives when, when they'll have their doubts and when they'll wonder. We live in a very but uh, sophisticated, secular, arrogant time, part of the world. We think we can solve everything and explain everything without reference to God. This is one of the things that our, our children, our grandchildren struggle with. It, it, it's, it, it's sometimes there's attacks upon Christianity that are that are overt and blatant, you know, they come straight at you and try to try to discourage you or to destroy your faith. But lots of other times, in fact, I'd say most of the time today, the attack comes by just relativizing the gospel. Oh yes, there are many people who believe that. But you know there are many people in the world who believe something else. And what's to say that your set of beliefs is anybody any better than anybody else's set of beliefs? And when you when you live in that kind of atmosphere, milieu, when you when you when you kind of breathe that air all the time, these doubts can insidiously kind of creep into your mind and heart. Am I sure about the gospel? Am I sure that there is a, a God like the Bible says there is, a triune God, a sovereign God, a holy God, a God of love and grace and mercy? Am I sure? Have I just believed cunningly devised fables and stories handed down to me through my parents? Do I really have something substantial to hold on to, something to build my life upon? The prophecy of Malachi would say to us, yes. Yes. God is true to his word. God is true to himself. God exists in light inapproachable. God has come to us in the person of his dear son and has provided salvation for our sins. And this great Savior is coming again at the end of the age. And if we embrace him, 
We will be saved not only in life, but in death. We will be saved to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth with all of God's people. And so Malachi brings the Old Testament scriptures to a close. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Look for the coming of Elijah. Ten years go by. Fifty years go by. A hundred years go by. People were born, were teenagers, got married, had families, became grandparents, and died. 200 years went by, 300 years went by, 400 years went by. God is not in a rush, he is not in a hurry, he knows what he's doing in the fullness of time. A man who liked to eat grasshoppers and wild honey begins preaching, begins preaching in a way that that had not been heard in Israel for 400 years, not since the prophet Malachi. Lord is on his way. His message was true. That Lord came. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. He came and he did exactly what Malachi said he would do, but probably in a way that not even Malachi could imagine. He purified his people by dying on a cross, by rising from the dead. And this one who died and rose from the dead has ascended on high and rules over everything now for the good of his church, Paul says. Even though it's been 2,000 years. But I believe, I trust you believe, we must believe that this Jesus who ascended into heaven will come again. Come in glory, come in power. Come to save his people. Come to make all things new. And so we wait. And while we wait, we pray and we labor and we struggle. But we wait in faith, in hope. With sure confidence. For this God who has been with us thus far will be with us to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for the prophecy of Malachi, your messenger, speaking many, many, many years ago to a small group of people, what was really left over of, of Israel and Judah, discouraged, downtrodden, possessors of great and precious promises. And yet it, they seemed to be nothing more than words that evaporated into thin air. Yet, as Malachi reminded them, you were present 
with them in those days. You knew what they were thinking, what they were saying, what they were doing. And you demonstrate that by disputing with them. You were there to comfort them, reminding them that you are the Lord of hosts, that though they are a small, insignificant group, that all power, all might, all, all honor, heaven's armies are under your control and command. And you told them that there would come a day when things would change, when sins would be dealt with, when Israel would be purified. And all of these are consistently tied to the coming of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that healing indeed is found in him. And we look forward to that day when he will finish what he has begun, when he will have saved all of his people from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. And when together we will worship him around the throne, giving praise to you and praise to the Lamb forever and ever. And so the prophets confront us in our own space and time, but bid us look to the future. Help us to look in faith. May that faith encourage us and inspire us in the day-to-day -day routine of life. Until we see you face to face, we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. My question was, you mentioned what exactly it is. Um, I was thinking it's that Levites or the priests, they were the intercessory clan, but maybe you can add to that. Sure, yeah, I think that's just a reference to the section of the Mosaic Law that deals with the uh, Levites and the priesthood and their responsibilities, you know, how they're selected and so forth. And so if you had priests that weren't fulfilling their covenant responsibilities, they would in effect be in violation of the covenant of Levi, almost a, um, I would see that as a, a kind of subdivision of the, of the Mosaic law that specifically address uh, the responsibilities of priests. So were, were, the, pre, were the Levites the only uh, people who were allowed to give sacrifices? Because we do see that other people also, uh, other Israelites also gave sacrifices, but was was that technically against the law? Well, you, you got to remember, as time goes on, and as Israel is not um, self-determining, what they're able to do in terms of uh, sacrifices and, and so forth are limited by the political powers that, uh, you know, that were in control at that time. I think the point of Malachi's prophecy, though, is that the the Levites, the priests, should have instructed the people, had responsibilities to instruct the people about bringing the very best of their flocks for sacrifices. 
And clearly the Israelites weren't doing that. And to make matters worse, the Levites, who should have known better, were accepting those sacrifices. So they were complicit in the, you know, in the sin of the people. So he, he speaks to the people generally, but holds the leaders uh, more responsible. I was wondering if you could flesh out a bit. Uh, you mentioned that Malachi 3, uh, the beginning of it, where it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, that you sort of saw that as being sort of the counterpart to uh, the vision, vision that Ezekiel had, that of, of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. Is, uh, that's something that's always confused me. Um, what, what does that mean for that sort of that, that inner canonical period where it is the glory of the Lord in the Holy of Holies? I've never really understood that. Okay, well, the the reference here in Malachi 3.1 is taken by you know many of the uh, commentators to indicate that although the temple had been rebuilt, there was not the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies as there had been uh, previously, and that they were looking for a greater manifestation of God's glory. Um, this I take as a reference ultimately to Jesus. I think he's the messenger of the covenant. I think he is the Lord who comes to the temple and who, and you know, you see that in the cleansings of the temple. He's the Lord of the temple who has the authority and the right to cleanse that temple. And, and also, as you, you know, you can take, I mentioned John's gospel. As you track through John's gospel, you find out that uh, you know, what it means to be the temple of God it is redefined and reinterpreted so that Jesus ultimately becomes the true temple of God. And that prepares the way for uh, Christian believers being spoken about as, you know, temples of the living God, temples of the Holy Spirit, you know, as you move through the New Testament scripture. So, you know, they're looking for the Lord to come to his temple. They're looking for blessing. They're looking for, uh, you know, I think probably a return of the glory of the old days and Malachi says the Lord's going to come to his temple. And I think we understand exactly, you know, what exactly Malachi was able to grasp, like on a psychological level. We can't get inside his brain. We can only take the words that he's speaking. We do know that the New Testament writers, Peter talks about the Old Testament prophets uh, being aware that the Spirit of Christ, uh, as he calls it, is speaking through them. And they're searching intently, trying to understand exactly what is being said. So I don't think we have to say that these prophets, you know, clearly grasped all that we're able to see this side of the cross with the aid of the New Testament scriptures and the work of the Spirit. But it is to say that Malachi, under inspiration of the Spirit, is speaking about God coming to his temple and it will result in a purifying and a cleansing of that temple, uh, a, a repudiation of those who are sorcerers and adulterers and everything else, and, and God... Uh, not only bringing glory to the temple, but uh, transforming his people. And I think the best exposition of that is what you've got in the Gospels and, and in the New Testament. Any other questions? I have a question about Malachi chapter 4. Mm -hmm. Why Elijah? Uh, good question. Um, the, all sorts of different suggestions are made. Uh, some people reference the fact that Elijah did not experience death but was taken into heaven, uh, you know, directly. He was taken up in the, the chariot, the horsemen of Israel and so forth. And so there's this idea of, of him 
you know, therefore being able to return. I don't put a lot of stock in that. Uh, some people feel that Elijah ministered in days uh, when the covenant had been basically forsaken. Elijah was involved in, you know, kind of reestablishing the covenant during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. And, uh, you know, even that whole thing on Mount Carmel where he rebuilds the altar as a kind of covenant renewing activity. And then God, you know, brings an end to the drought and it consumes the uh, sacrifices that were on the altar. So there's sort of analogous times. Israel uh, required an Elijah back in those days of Ahab and Jezebel when the people were running amok and uh, God was going to send another prophet like Elijah in the spirit of Elijah, uh, uh, a powerful you know, man's man to kind of call Israel uh, back to the Lord. The other thing I think you have to keep in mind is that there's a reference to, in verse 4, to my servant Moses and then a reference to Elijah in verse 5. And it's interesting that on the Mount of Transfiguration, both Moses and Elijah you know, appear with Jesus, speaking about the exodus that he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. And, and probably in that passage are seen as representative of the, uh, the law and the prophets or representative of the, you know, the, the prophets of the Old Testament generally. So you know, there, there's, a, there's a number of different things going on. It would be hard to, I wouldn't want to, you know, uh, say it, it's this and only this. A number of interesting kinds of references. I do think, though, that the Elijah spoken about here is John the Baptist. I think that Jesus makes that absolutely clear in the New Testament, uh, that uh, he is the Elijah who is spoken of. So uh, this is prophetic, typological language that finds its fulfillment in John the Baptist who comes ahead of Jesus. How are you doing? Nice to see you again. Um, in verse 6 it says that uh, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Does it apply to Jesus' second coming? Or Pardon me? Does it apply to Jesus' second coming? Or can you no, comment I think, about it? I think it's referring there to the ministry of, of of uh, John. I mean, the context here is that Israel is... The, now, a lot of this will depend on your eschatology, so not everyone's going to agree with me, but um, Israel's time as a, uh, as a, as a nation uh, that enjoyed privileged status is going to... is threatened by their sin. And I personally think that what is being said here is that with the coming of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus, that will be the end of the road for them. And either they will listen to John and ultimately listen to the Lord who comes uh, in the wake of, of, uh, of John's preparatory ministry, uh, or they will be no longer really part of Israel. Because as I understand the flow of redemptive history, um, Israel, what it means to be Israel is redefined with the coming of Jesus Christ. To be an Israelite is to be attached to him by faith. And, uh, and that applies to both Jews and Gentiles. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So this is just saying that um, uh, John will have a ministry in which he calls people to repentance, calls the children to return to the ways of the, of the fathers and uh, and the fathers to have regard for their children, basically calls them back to covenant fidelity, otherwise a total destruction, otherwise a curse uh, is going to fall upon them. And uh, I think that's exactly what we see in the New Testament.
You mentioned that after Malachi there is a time of 400 years when no canonical scripture was written and uh, a lot of religious writings were written in that period by the Jews. Mm -hmm. And so now we have our Bible which uh, ends with Malachi. Do we, do we accept that it's uh, scripture because our pastor tells us or is there a way inwardly that we can know that it's scripture? Yeah, there were many books that were written during the so-called silent period of about 400 years. Uh, interestingly enough, the Jews themselves never put those books on a level with what we would call the canonical scriptures. They recognized that uh, there, had, there was no prophet like those older prophets uh, in this, in this uh, subsequent period of time. Uh, basically, when it comes to determining what is canonical with regards to the Old Testament, we look to the New Testament scriptures for substantiation. So the early church um, you know, was able to go to the New Testament and see, uh, you know, look at the Old Testament in light of that. And when you do that, you find that uh, the New Testament substantiates this uh, Old Testament canon, particularly in its Jewish form, it's starting in Genesis and ending in Chronicles. When you come to the New Testament, you don't have the same luxury because we don't have a, 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 a corpus of writings after the New Testament that helps us to substantiate the New Testament. So you have to look at things like apostolicity, you know, was it written by an apostle, an associate, uh, was it uh, you know, received in the in the whole church um, as being a faithful and true testimony, um, so forth. There's other marks of of uh, canonicity in the New Testament, but when it comes to the Old, uh, we find that um, the Old Testament, uh, our Old Testament, is quoted in the New Testament uh, by New Testament writers. Jesus puts his stamp of approval on it. There's never any controversy between Jesus and the apostles with the extent of the Hebrew canon. He never he never debates with the scribes and Pharisees and says, well, your argument is based upon something that I don't regard to be scripture. He completely agrees with the Jews with you know concerning their assessment of what was scripture, and and our uh, Bibles with the 39 our 39 books the Jews number them a little differently are in accord with uh, what is received by the Jews as being the word of God. The other writings are seen as secondary writings. They're helpful from a historical standpoint, but they are never—they're never treated as scripture, and that's that's very important. Uh, Malachi one seven eight—it's uh, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar and. Uh, the table of the Lord is contentable. And verse 8 says, and, uh, If you offer the blind for the sacrifice, is that not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Um, I know this is Old Testament, but I'm like now New Testament, we're the, we're the sacrifice, right. we're the living sacrifices. I just, uh, well, just, I just want to... I just want to, in, in your opinion, what's the, if we are the living sacrifices, what is the, uh, are we still guilty of, of not offering ourselves uh, 
Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.